Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. My co-host Ethan Elkind is off for the night, but you'll hear him later on in the show speaking with San Francisco's favorite historian, Gary Camilla. We'll also be talking about how to keep a holiday classic fresh with Peter Quo. He's the director of the American Conservatory Theater's production of A Christmas Carol, which is on stage through December 24th. Stay tuned to hear how they keep the bah humbug vibe going year after year. But first, just one year ago, even amid a pandemic, San Francisco was flush. City Hall reported its first surplus since 1998. Things were looking good, at least financially. But now, with downtown largely closed, the city is facing a $728 million deficit over the next two years. Yes, that is a nearly $1 billion shortfall. How did the city get here, and how will it handle this? Here to break it down with us is Kevin Trong. He's a reporter with the San Francisco Standard. Welcome back to State of the Bay, Kevin. Thank you for having me, Grace. Yeah. So, Kevin, before we Kevin, before we go into the budget shortfall, I kind of wanted to talk about the size of the San Francisco budget. Um, can you give us a sense of just how big the budget is? Sure. So the common number that gets thrown around um, on an annual basis is something like $14 billion. Um, but what this, what what folks need to know is that's actually split up between what's called the general fund, which is around $7 billion or so, and the rest is uh, in other departments, for example, like SFO, which has its own budgeting system. So what we're talking about, the, the budget deficit that you just mentioned, we're talking about the general fund, which is basically what the mayor and uh, public officials have to play with the, the, the discretionary fund. Mm-hmm. I mean, even six point eight billion dollars is massive. I mean, just to foot this, I just looked at the state of Nevada's annual budget is four point six billion dollars. I mean, Nevada is not a hugely populated state, but nevertheless, that just kind of gives you an idea of how big our budget is. So, tell us about this projected deficit. Um, does it, it? It's it's supposed to cover two years. Why is that? And where's the information from? So every December, uh, the the mayor puts out basically a projection of what the budget is going to look out look like for the next two years, and uh, the city has kind of a two year budgeting process, which is uh, allows them to plan for the next year as well as sort of make um, plans for the year ahead. And it's just uh, written to the city charter of that's how it's supposed to be done. And and, and like you said, last year the city was was uh, really trumpeting these numbers. Um, it, it had a $108 million surplus, the first surplus that the city has sort of seen since 1998. Um, but if you kind of dig into those numbers, what that surplus came from is basically a lot of the uh, relief funding that was coming from the federal government to help mm. municipalities like San Francisco sort of uh, smooth over the economic hit of uh, the pandemic. And, and what we're seeing now with the $728 million deficit over the next two years is, is really the chickens coming home to roost. Right. And so in 23, 2023 to 24, we're looking at a $200 million shortfall. And then um, the projection is $527.5 million for the following year. Mm-hmm. I mean, does do the numbers, I mean, I know that the city projects out even as far as five years, do the numbers get better or are they kind of the same? Uh, well, the numbers actually get um, quite a bit worse. Um, like you said, 20, 
200 million or so for 2023-24 and that rises to 1.2 billion or or so in 2027 and what's important to remember from these numbers and when i was talking to some of the city budget officials um, this is something that stuck out to me is that these numbers don't project the possibility of a recession next year, which is actually what a lot of economists think is going to happen, a mild to moderate recession. And, you know, it's yet to be seen how San Francisco will, how San Francisco's economy will respond to some of that, um, some of those challenges. Why doesn't the the budget projection include maybe a forecast for, and this is the number that you get if we had a recession? Yeah, so <laughs> I think there's a couple reasons behind that, right? So this number obviously is not politically good for uh, right. San Francisco to, to put out um, and, and putting a number that may be even higher for a uh, potential pathway that may not happen um, probably isn't to their benefit. Now, we'll be seeing more and more um, updated projections as uh, 2023 goes on, first in January and later um, in, in the rest of the year. The budgeting process sort of is finalized in the, in the summer. Um, so we'll start to see uh, whether that $728 million number changes, uh, but it's kind of yet to be seen. Is it typical that the City Hall that city hall comes out with this sort of gloom and doom number and it just gets whittled away by June? So then it looks like, well, you know, it could have been wor- really bad, but now we fixed it. And so it becomes a politically triumphant story. Or is the process just the process and the number stays roughly the same? Well, so every year, San Francisco is required to pass a balanced budget. And what the $728 million number is, is a deficit, a shortfall. Um, so what the mayor is basically having these individual city part departments uh, do to do is to cut a certain amount from their budget, uh, 5% the first year, 8% the next year. Um, and, you know, in, in her so-called budget instructions, what the mayor's having them do is is preserve what she calls core functions, priorities that she has as a politician, as, as a leader for the city. So things like homelessness funding, things like mental health funding, uh, things like, you know, safe streets and, and public safety. Um, but, you know, those cuts are going to have to come from somewhere and, and those trade-offs are going to be uh, have to be made. And, and they're going to be a difficult decisions for uh, a lot of these departments to figure out, you know, what is not working what can be cut, and what positions get filled. Mm. Does this mean that they're going to be thinking about laying people off? Or, you know, if you're a city budget, you're responsible for part of the city budget, is, is a layoff what they're, is what they're talking about? So um, when I've talked to some of the folks who are coming up with this number, they say layoffs are not in the cards now. Um, they're more thinking about cutting programs. Obviously, that, that may turn into position losses and not filling up uh, vacant uh, positions that that may not be high priority. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if we're going to look for the last great analog that we have, which is the financial crisis back in 2008, um, the city laid off, had to lay off, uh, you know, a, a few hundred workers mm. um, because of that. And, you know, in just the raw numbers, this 728 million um, number is, is, is higher than, than those that we saw a few years back. Uh, so in 2008, in, in the wake of the Great Recession, the, this $728 million, $28 million deficit is much more than what we faced in 2008. Uh-huh. And yeah. for a little bit of added context, it's a smaller percentage of that larger uh, 
that larger uh, budget number, mm-hmm. but it, it, it is a higher absolute number. Yeah. Well, in your article about this, you tried you put it into context for people, and you noted that $728 million is what San Francisco is currently allocating for the municipal transit agency that runs Muni, the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, and the Department of Public Works combined. And mm-hmm. obviously not suggesting that those things would be cut, but just like that's how big this number is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the mayor's asking pe- uh, city city departments to cut um, by five to eight percent for the next two fiscal years. I guess was the announcement a surprise? Um, you know, I, I've been waiting for this announcement for a while ah. because, like I said, the um, federal relief money that basically helped boost the city's fiscal situation was going to run out, um, mm-hmm. and the only question was when. Um, and the city is facing a number of problems that that are leading to this deficit. Uh, chief is the uh, loss in revenues that come from property taxes. Uh, San Francisco's empty downtown is, is a major part of that, as well as business taxes. You know, a lot of companies either relocated or shifted their the distribution of their workforce away from San Francisco. That means less tax paid. And that means a, a, a higher deficit. Well, I think in your piece, um Let's see. It was a $1 billion tax revenue loss over the next six years because of commercial property taxes being down. Is that because the buildings are empty and um, the owners aren't paying taxes on them because they're empty? I mean, mean, if you own the building, shouldn't you be paying the taxes? So this is basically how it works, right? So you have a greater number of these buildings being empty. So that means less revenue for the building owners. And every single year, uh, owners get basically a property tax bill. Mm. Um, but they're basically saying, since we're not getting anybody in here and we're not making any money off of it, this building is actually worth less. Oh. You only have to pay taxes on the assessed value of that building. And so a lot of um, building owners right now are arguing their buildings are worth uh, worth less. Oh, it's, a, it's just a perfect storm. And then um, you've also noted that the city's paying higher wages. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So, you know, what we saw um, earlier in this summer during the the last budget fight is we saw a lot of the public sector unions really um, come together to fight for stronger contracts that um, included compensation raises that were over inflation, benefits increases, things like that. Um, So what's kind of interesting is that the $108 million surplus that um, the city initially trumpeted actually shrunk quite a bit. Um, mm. When they when they started signing those uh, those new labor contracts, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and people want to make sure that the city employees are paid well, but I mean, obviously that took up our surplus. I, I mean, I just have a bigger question. You you point out that seventy two percent of San Francisco's gross domestic product is based on the office sector, and mm. when people don't go to work understandable, um, life has changed, then offices are not full. If offices are not full, then the building is worth less. I don't, how do we diversify our city's income stream so that we're not so dependent on offices for so much mm-hmm. of what we provide to the city? Yeah. So interestingly enough, like when you look at the last great recession, um, what the city did was sort of use business and businesses as a uh, as a way to make up some of that revenue gap that um, can can kind of be variable in terms of property. Now they're sort of facing a situation where they're sort of being battered on all fronts. Now, if you listen to the 
economic development folks at the city, they're focusing on trying to get um, new industries to come and foster and grow in San Francisco. Things like green tech, climate tech, um, things like manufacturing, um, you know, things that need to be a little bit more in person can help uh, alleviate some of the budget issues that we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, but the problem is, in a lot of cases, San Francisco is a really expensive place to do business for a lot of reasons. And the rents, commercial rents, as, as an example, is, is not um, a major help. So I think we're going to need to see a right sizing in some of those prices mm -hmm. and honestly, a right sizing for the budget, um, mm. you know, basically trying to figure out how to live within the new means for the new era that mm -hmm. we are currently in. I mean, not to sound like a gadfly, but I, I wouldn't say that most San Franciscans feel like the the amount of city services they get is overwhelmingly like awesome or there's just a lot of city services. So it feels hard to think about where it might be cut. And just to be clear, out of the general fund, are we talking about funding schools or is that separate? Uh, so schools have various amounts of funding. The general fund does uh, fund some aspects of schools, but you know, uh, San Franciscans in the past have passed various tax uh, funds and bonds that that also keep schools funding. So it's going to be a lot of uh, juggling, I think, for uh, city officials to figure out how to keep a, you know, generally high level of service with uh, also, you know, making the cuts that are necessary to, to pass a balanced budget. Well, so London Breed has come out and said, OK, we, you guys, we're facing this problem. We're going to be looking at this deficit. What has the Board of Supervisors said? What's what's the reaction there? So the board is, um, I think, you know, maybe for the first couple of days, there's a little bit of shock from a lot of the city officials and just the sheer size of this number. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of the board agrees, even though there are sort of political conflicts uh, in between, that they needed to all get on board and try to figure out to make the budget work for the most people, while also cutting things that are ineffective, cutting things that are a waste of money, you know, making sure that the programs that we are funding are, are actually working. Now, it's uh, an open question on how that will look. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, every single year is a, a, a quite a fierce budget fight that happens at the board and, and in the mayor's office. Um, but I think we're going to need to see them really get on the same page on figuring out what are the core things that the city needs to survive and its, mm -hmm. its residents need to feel comfortable, safe and and uh, productive. And, you know, getting on the same page of, of how to actually right size the budget in order to do that. Yeah. And to put more context on it, I mean, it's it's not just San Francisco that's facing these problems. I, I understand Oakland has a pretty significant deficit as well and mm -hmm. possibly the state itself. Can you help us contextualize this? I mean, we're not an island of budgetary gloom and doom. No, I, I think a lot of municipalities are, are facing this problem. And, and you met, you know, we, we spoke a little bit about the kind of issues with the empty downtown. That's something that New York is facing. That's something Chicago's facing. And they're needing to figure out how to make up that tax revenue as well. And it's something that's happening across the city. Uh, I mean, the, the state, too. You know, I think the state recently put out a, um, you know, 20 billion or so deficit in their own um in their own financial projections. And, and you know, that's kind of still a, a moving number. Um, but, you know, a lot of that comes from, you know, the, the wins of the last couple of years, in, in, including uh, the federal relief money, which is, you know, billions and billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And honestly, the booming stock market, um, which sort of seems to be at an end, which was led by a lot of the technology companies that were coming out of San Francisco. I mean, is there any good news? Is there any sign? I think we talked a little bit about hotels and sales tax revenue being on the rebound. Is that looking okay? <laughs> yeah. So hotel and hotel and sales tax is actually uh, fifty three 
million higher uh, in, in revenue than was previ previously expected. Now, that's not enough to make up the gap lost through property taxes and business taxes and things of, things of that nature, mm -hmm. but it is a good sign, and it's a potential sign of how the city could make up some of this revenue. For example, um, really promoting and investing in the tourism sector or really promoting and investing in the uh, retail activity in some of the outer neighborhoods, um, which has recovered at a, at a much faster clip than some of the downtown um, businesses. Well, I can see why London Breed, every time she has an opportunity to do so, is just begging people to come back to the office, <laughs> offices <laughs> downtown. And that seems like really at this moment of the solution, just because our downtown in San Francisco, it's not really well suited to anything but offices, right? There's not a lot of residential down there. No, and that's part of the problem. You know, you have like folks like, um, you know, our, our local um, state representative, Matt Haney, who's talking about trying to make some of these conversions a little bit easier. Um, and I think, you know, in the in the years to come, we will see more of a, a downsizing of our office space and, and kind of a, a reimagining of what downtown can be. Um, now, that is a process that takes over that takes place over the course of a number of years. And uh, the city is really facing um, a very real bill um, coming due right now. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's 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 yet to be seen how how those timelines will match up. Well, final question, Kevin, what will you be looking for in the next few months on this story? Yeah, so some of the things that I'll be looking for is the larger macro economy and how the stock market um, recovers or, or fails to, whether interest rates will continue to increase, which hurts the tech industry and, and hurts some of the local startups. Um, and I'll look for the, the new numbers coming out from the city. You know, what do they feel is important what, versus what do they feel are um, trade-offs that may get cut? because of this uh, shortfall that they're having to face. Well, it's a lot of sobering news, but thank you so much for coming back to State of the Bay and helping co to put us to put that in context for us, Kevin. Uh, appreciate you having me on. Yeah, that was Kevin Trong. He's a reporter from the San Francisco Standard. Definitely follow him. He's always got a good beat on what's happening in the city. And coming up next on State of the Bay, we're talking about everyone's favorite miserly humbug, Ebenezer Scrooge, and the ACT's production of A Christmas Carol. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. One thing that makes the holidays great is tradition. Your annual pilgrimage to see the holiday lights or the trip to see the grandparents or maybe it's watching the Nutcracker at San Francisco Ballet, which my family and I have done every year for at least a decade. But if you're the person putting on the show, it might be hard to keep it fresh. And that's something I was curious about. How do you keep a holiday classic feeling like a favorite versus a tired old retread? Here to answer that question is Peter Kuo. He's the director of the American Conservatory Theater's production of A Christmas Carol. Kuo is the director of the conservatory at ACT. He serves on the staff EDI committee as well. Quo is an alum of the Williamstown Theater Festival's Directing Corps, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival's FAIR program, and Director's Lab West. He received his MFA at the New School of Drama in New York, and I'm so pleased to welcome him to State of the Bay. Welcome, Peter. 
Hi, Grace. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, delighted to. So I think on any given day in December, someone somewhere is putting on a Christmas carol. And it's a story that so many people already know. And the ACT's version has been on, I mean, I think on the board since at least 1976. I'm just curious, when did you first encounter a Christmas carol, Peter? Oh, oh well, in, I mean, in general, I think uh, for most people, I they watched the earlier version and mm-hmm. I think I saw the Disney one first, the, <laughs> the Scrooge one. And it's funny when we were auditioning for this upcoming production, that was my first question that I actually asked all of our auditioners because people come in, they're very nervous and they, they're not quite sure. Like I am myself nervous right now. Oh, and so okay. having like a, an icebreaker question like this, like, tell me what is your relationship with the Christmas Carol? Yeah. And majority of them mentioned that, the Muppet Christmas Carol was the oh. first one. And I think that is one that a lot of people hold on to. I um, love that version with Michael Caine. Yes, I mean, absolutely. Michael Caine in that version just plays it dead straight, you know, which is very hard to do with a bunch of puppets around you. There's an excellent meme floating around about that, where it is like a company that's saying, we're going to do a Christmas Carol, but with Muppets. And Michael Caine's <laughs> like, I am going to give this the most serious acting chops possible. <laughs> Well, I was thinking about my own question, and I think I had a Scrooge McDuck version, so that's definitely mm-hmm. Disney, and then probably some kind of British production on PBS, since that's the only TV we were allowed to watch as kids. So, um, But let me ask you, you've directed this in many forms. What makes A Christmas Carol so timeless? You know, it's it's such an interesting story. Um, we were just talking about this earlier today in a staff meeting, and the thing that I think about is... I think we all have a little bit of a Scrooge in us. And that's such a weird thing to think about because Scrooge is seen as, quote, quote, the the villain in the story. But really, he's our anti-villain um, in, in the sense of he's someone who's a product of circumstance. The things that have happened in his life, the way he lived his life, the way things, the, the system kind of told him money is important to secure these different things turns him into who he becomes. Mm. And it's not until we reflect on those things and notice the impact of who we are and the potential for our future of who we can be that we really kind of take stock of of our lives. And I think that's why, you know, that storyline is so universal. Who we were, who we are now, and what we can do in the future. Like, that is not just for Scrooge. That's the story that we're used to is seeing A Christmas Carol, but we all need that reflection in our life. I mean, especially after a pandemic, which has, you know, put reflection front and center for a lot of us. And, you know, during the pandemic, A Christmas Carol wasn't being staged. Has the pandemic uh, changed how you view the the piece at all? Yeah, certainly. Uh, it for me specifically, it what we were just talking about, I look at the play and I look at all the characters around Scrooge, right? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that we do hit on is how does his curmudgeonliness affect them? Mm-hmm. But I also really like looking at and what are the ways that these characters either tried to care for him, love him, or also push back against him, mm-hmm. shape who he is. And in many ways, Scrooge was a um, self-determined isolator, right? He was (laughs) isolating himself before anyone else. And now at this time, we're seeing, oh, 
we've all been in isolation for so long. And how are the th- ways that we've kind of just lived this life for the past umpteen year or two years, really, mm-hmm. uh, a little more than then, that have affected us, that now we're transitioning back into engaging the world again? And what are ways that we've kind of closed ourselves off in ways we hadn't even thought of? Mm-hmm. And how can we return back to that deep human connection that we can have with each other? And what amazing way to do that, as we're seeing in our theaters, is people actually gathering to the theater and coming together to experience something together for, for the first time for many of them. I think it's so great. And I I think a lot of us during the pandemic, during lockdown, probably had visits of Christmas past and present and future, you know, during the, some of those grim times. Um, I just want to reintroduce the program. This is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW Bay Area. I'm Grace Wan. We're talking tonight with Peter Kuo. He's the director of the ACT's production of A Christmas Carol. And we'd love to hear from you. Is seeing A Christmas Carol part of your family tradition? What do you look forward to? And if it's not a Christmas carol, what are some other holiday classics that you enjoy? Whether that's A Wonderful Life, Mix the Muppets version of A Christmas Carol, or some Snoopy cartoon. Tell us what makes Christmas or the holidays the holidays for you. You can join us by calling 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at org, Or find us on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. So we've been talking about the production itself, and um, I mean, A Christmas Carol is a novella by Charles Dickens from the 19th century. Tell me a little bit about the play itself. That's not a Dickens, or is it a Dickens-influenced um, piece, or was it written by somebody else? Sure. So this production was originally adapted by the previous artistic director of ACT, Carrie Perloff and Paul Walsh, who... Um, who was a playwright in his own right at the time. Um, And so this script kind of has carried over for the past 17 years since then. We've adjusted it here and there. We have made a lot of tweaks this year, I think in reflection, because we haven't done the show up on its feet in three years. Mm. The last time it was performed was in 2019. And then when the pandemic hit, everything kind of shut down. And even now, we've been in rehearsal processes. People have been wearing their masks. Uh, We have COVID safety protocols. I'm now used to testing myself every other day to make sure that I'm still good to go into the rehearsal room because Mm. we have a bunch of people who are in an enclosed space sharing air and specifically singing and speaking to each other. And so we put a lot of safety measures into place Mm -hmm. um, to to make this uh, adaptation kind of come to life and with it we've created these little adjustments to acknowledge things that have changed because not only has the pandemic affected us but the changing culture specifically of social issues have changed around us Hmm. you know there are certain words that dickens uses in his original novel that aren't very time they've aged out right Right. you know i think the references to tiny tim as uh, someone who has a disability and you know this is something that actually came up in the rehearsal process thanks to an amazing staff member um who has a disability who mentioned you know the language of this still seems a bit ableist Mm. and so we changed it uh before it used to talk about how uh, Christ would make uh, blind men see and lame beggars walk. And we realized, oh, well, it's not about curing those who are uncurable. It is about curing those who have illnesses mm. who can be cured. But there is a want to embrace the fact that some people who live with disabilities 
like their life that way. And it's about bringing joy to them and not necessarily changing their life simply because we as mostly able-bodied people look at that and go like, well, there's a better way to live your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just fascinating. Uh, what other changes have you had to make to the play to bring it, um, to make it more palatable to contemporary audiences? Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's a bit of also, there's a lot of, in that classical time, gendering of things. And what was interesting to me was the actual, in Dickens' novel, the spirits themselves kind of have a floatingness when it comes to gender, and specifically Christmas past. Um, the way that Dickens writes that character, it's like this character who's both old and young, has multiple heads, then no heads, then multiple arms. It's like this am- amorphous character, right? Something that you can't really put on stage, in, per se, in that way. Mm-hmm. Um And so finding the heart of that piece and saying, what can we do that's different? What can we do that's magical and powerful, but has meaning to people that feels important to the Bay Area in a certain way? Um, So in this production, we've cast a wonderful actress, B. Noel, who is a, a trans Black woman. And she's talked to me about how much that representation matters to her and how it matters to us. And every single time she enters, for those of you who haven't seen the show, she has this beautiful, significant entrance that gets applause so many times. <laughs> um, and part of that, I think, is the entrance itself, but it's also her presence, her seeing... Um, a beautiful uh, trans woman who is a, a, a person of a different atypical size also like resonates with so many people to see, oh, there is an existence that we're not used to seeing on stage. And while we get to see it in all of its glory and we get to embrace it and love it. Uh, and so that's something that I think has been another way that we've transformed in just casting, having a diverse group of actors on stage one party scene basically has an all BIPOC cast for the most part Mm. and do you find that your audience is responsive to that I mean are there favorite scenes or moments that have continued from year to year that just you know the audience is just going to get a giggle out of that um, there are several. I have to say one of my favorite things is, so we have student matinees, and for this year, every single one of them have been sold out. Oh. So it's an, an audience of almost a thousand kids watching the show. And for those who don't know the story too much, it, this is a bit of a spoiler alert. So okay. tune out for the next Tune out, everybody. So. Tune out. <laughs> but in this version, um, young Scrooge falls in love with Belle. And they get engaged, but then she breaks up with him. And that's part of the heartbreak that Scrooge goes through. And what we learn is Belle remarries and she has kids. And it turns out that it, she remarries Scrooge's best friend. And the three of them were all friends together. Oh. And it's always this kind of moment where when you're watching the adult audience, no one makes a noise. It's just kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, that's mm-hmm. the direction that she went. When you get those student matinees, those kids go wild. They're like, <laughs> oh my gosh, she slept with his best friend and so forth. And you're like, because they have three kids together and they clearly, it's like this mumbling that happens where everyone's shocked that she chose the other friend 
Oh, I mean, it's, it's hysterical. I mean, it sounds like its own Netflix adaptation. I feel like we're going to see young Scrooge anytime soon. Yes. Um, well, we have a listener from San Francisco who writes, I love this production of A Christmas Carol. I've been going year after year and was so sad to have missed it during the pandemic. It's the perfect San Francisco production of a classic. So you have a real fan there in appreciating that. Um, so I'm just curious, is there a when you think about Scrooge, he's he's such an indelible character. He's such a grouch. Is that how the actor who plays Scrooge plays it? I mean, is he, as we were talking about Michael Caine earlier, is he playing it straight? Um, no, that's a great question. So we actually have two actors who play the role just ah. because it's such a large role. And mm-hmm. it requires basically the characters on stage almost all the time. Ah. They're three moments and when they step off stage and that's all in the first act (laughs) on the second act they're just there on stage they never leave it's exhausting and especially because they're playing an an older character so these actors are a little bit more in their age it's it's a lot of work and so we have been blessed with the talent of jim carpenter and anthony fusco so they alternate their performances Mm -hmm. and so What's fun about that is they both bring a slightly different interpretation to Scrooge, right? And one maybe plays the humor of him just a little bit more, where Mm. the curmudgeonliness is something that we laugh at, where the other brings a little bit of that heartache of like, oh, they're a curmudgeon because something hurt them or someone hurt them Mm. in a certain way. And I think both of them are very valid. I think those of us who have that curmudgeonly spirit within us, it comes from different spaces and different places. And so I think it completely makes sense where that comes from. So those actors certainly live in the laughs, but we spend so much time in the rehearsal process talking about who is this person and where is he coming from that I think they breed incredible truth to it. There's a reason why when he says something grouchly, like um, wanting to poor uh have a mistletoe put in people's hearts right Mm -hmm. as as a way of revenge there's a a truth behind it that you Mm. see that you see oh that's coming from someplace that has hurt you or that has made you upset and that's why you're responding you're shielding yourself Mm -hmm. and i think that's the beauty of what these actors do especially at the end of the play the transformation it it breaks your heart Mm. to see someone go through this realization of, oh my gosh, I need to change the way I've been living my life um, because there's there's a need for goodness in the world and they they just embody it in a magical way. Oh, we have another listener who writes in, I think this is a classic because we all love a redemption story. Mm-hmm. And I that's exactly kind of what you were saying that, you know, Scrooge is a powerful character. This is a classic story because it has a redemption deeming quality to it. He doesn't stay a Scrooge forever. um, And that makes him a compelling and a classic character. Is that redemption that he experiences? How do you keep that fresh as a director so that, you know, I mean, your actors night after night are repeating the same thing. I know it varies between actors, but just in anything that you do over and over again, how what's your note to an actor just to help them keep it fresh um yeah no that's great right before i left um finishing the last day of rehearsal 
I told them there are three things that I really think will help them the most as they can, they're right about to step on stage. Mm. Um, two of them were very technical. Project <laughs> so that you can be heard. Okay. Cheat out so people can see your face. Mm-hmm. But the third is that there are... Um, take pride in the story that you're telling because it is one that will can affect many people Mm. and and impact them in a way and so i think that moment right beforehand of taking pride in the story that's being told is really part of what keeps it fresh for them because you can it's something to be active about that we get to be proud of who we are and I shared with them all that same idea that we're all a little scroogely. <laughs> and it's because we are who we are based off of the things that happen to us. And if we don't look back and be slightly embarrassed of an earlier version of ourselves, mm. that means we haven't really grown. Mm. And I think that's something that, you know, both as the director of the conservatory at ACT, I value growth. I value learning. Those are really yeah. important things to me. And this is like one of the biggest lessons of learning that we can witness is the Scrooge story. Yeah. I And I think there is a real difference in seeing it live and in person. Um, you know, I, there's so many adaptations, movie adaptations of, of this story that we've talked about, A Wonderful Life and, you know, Scrooge. But to actually see an actor transform on stage in terms of their outlook on life and their personality. That's the magic of theater, isn't it? Absolutely. I I love both theater and I love film and television. And there was a period in which I was kind of examining both and how they were emerging, especially during this pandemic, because we were bringing um, theater online for folks for a period, because that was the best way that we can do it, right? Mm -hmm. And, And the way I think we've, I've kind of come down to it is... Film and television kind of takes what happens in our imagination of our brains Mm -hmm. and it tries to mimic reality Mm. in bringing it with computer graphics and things like that. When you're in the theater, you are actually witnessing reality, but you are you're letting your imagination take over. And when it comes to storytelling, Mm. you know, in our production, there's this big puppet that plays Christmas future that's being operated by these people, Mm -hmm. but your mind wants to just focus on that. And you forget about the puppeteers. Mm. You fall for the story. You know, it's a thousand people on one side staring at 40 people on another side of a stage. Right. Mm. But we use our imagination to allow us to be a part of this group of a thousand people witnessing this story. Mm-hmm. It's it's amazing that there's a moment where the Scrooge's bed kind of rises up and out of the floor. Mm-hmm. And we're just imagining, oh, we're changing rooms. Mm. We allow our imagination to activate in a really exciting way that gets empathy going, gets brainwaves going, gets our synapses kind of firing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, as you were saying, it's, as a theater goer, I'm filling in the blanks mm-hmm. because not everything is there. Whereas in a movie, as you just very artfully said, it's like CGI tries to put everything in there for me so I don't have to think about it. It's like, oh, right, you're flying an airplane. But in the theater, you have to make make believe in that. And that's what the fun of it is. Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm curious because during the pandemic, ACT put on a, a radio version of this play so you guys could do it um, you know, an audio version of that. And you were the one who adapted it. In in putting that radio play together, did it change how you heard the play? 
Oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and it's interesting because we took some of the things that we learned from the radio play and brought them into the state adaptation. Mm-hmm. And then we also learned where certain things were unnecessary. Because um, in truth, the story of A Christmas Carol is all about one person witnessing something, mm-hmm. Scrooge, witnessing his past, his present and future, and learning from them. And in the novel, of course, where you're able to drive into the psyche and what Scrooge is thinking and feeling. And then in theater version, we actually get to witness him responding to mm-hmm. these things, whether he's saying anything or not. In the radio version, we didn't have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. If you don't hear Scrooge, you can actually forget that he's even in the room <laughs> witnessing this, right? Right. Oh, that's actually such a fascinating point. Yeah. So so we actually built into the script moments where he would comment or something or say something <sighs> or agree or disagree with what is being shared with him so that we remember, oh, right, this person is witnessing this mm-hmm. and they're supposed to be learning something from their seeing. Um And that helped bring some clarity of, like, what is Scrooge's journey here that the audience needs to flag? That helped us in the production version of it. Mm -hmm. And then there are moments where I'm like, the actor is acting on stage and they're doing fantastic. We don't need to add this extra line that reinforces this feeling. The audience can see it. Yeah. I mean, that's so interesting. And, you know, it's kind of like being a radio host and we often hmm and ha, like on the background. So you, so the listeners out there remember that we're around, but it's yeah. exactly that. It's like, I'm listening, but I want you to know I'm listening. So I'll, I'll add a little mm-hmm in that. Um, so, you know, this is the first production um, since the pandemic, you know, since the theater closed its doors in 2020 and it's the first live production and now you're back. And I mean, we, we talked a little bit about how that pandemic affected the production, but how is the state of the world in terms of the politics of it and like what we're dealing with in terms of violence and, you know, the not happy aspects of the world that we're living in today? Have those inflected how you've put this show on? Gosh, yes. So there are two different forms of politics that I think kind of hit this production. Um, One of them is purely a whole conversation around representation and what does that look like um, versus authenticity of Dickensian times, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I've I've got an extensive background all about, you know, um, what it means for people from uh, different minoritized groups to be engaging in theater. And that's a whole nother conversation. Okay, right. We'll right have to have you back this. for that one. We're going to have you back for that one. <laughs> Absolutely. But now specifically, it's just about representing on the stage. And one of the things that we've included is there's a there's a couple, a pregnant couple that exists on the in the show. And the last two times we did it on stage, um, the that couple was both women. Now mm-hmm. they don't make a lot of references to they're married, they're they're significant others, but there's enough my dear or my darlings mm-hmm. that for those who are open to that are gonna be like, Oh my gosh, that's a lesbian couple that's on stage. Mm-hmm. And others who might go, Oh, they're sisters. <laughs> um and you know, people wanna take what they want to take from it. I will confirm that I like to view them as a lesbian couple on stage um, because I think that representation matters because I had someone come up to me afterwards and said, I saw that and I saw oh. myself in that. Thank oh. you. I mean, I think that's amazing. And I think that's, again, the the wonder of theater is that it's flexible. These plays, the story is over 150 years old, but you can not bend it, but to really mold it to fit the age that we live in. And another way that 
I was sort of fascinated with, with what ACT is doing. I was looking online and there was a sensory-friendly performance of this production. It was yesterday on December yeah. 18th. And, you know, again, it shows a little a sensitivity to your audience that I'm not sure that a lot of theater goers would know about or that theaters do. So tell us a little bit about that and why you did that. Yeah, so that came from a number of different places. A number of folks on staff have been asking, are we going to do this? When are we going to do this? Uh, I'd love to see this happen. And it's something that I also agreed. I was very passionate about. I think part of what we are still sorting is the timing of it all. And um, when it comes to doing a sensory-friendly performance of a show, it it does require some additional resources, which I'm glad that we dedicated those to because it, it is things like, okay, well, let's make sure we're getting a consultant in that mm. who actually has an expertise in this because none of us have that expertise. Um, so we don't, we don't want to make up ideas of what this should mean for a specific community of people. Um, but we also have to go in and kind of retech the show a little bit, adjust the light levels, make sure there's no major strobing lights, uh, the audio levels so that both the audience is who are uh, sensitive mm-hmm. to certain loud sounds that they feel comfortable, but also the actors who've been performing the show under certain technical elements for a long time are aware how it's changed. Mm. So they're not surprised on stage because that can throw them off as well. Uh, you know, we have a big dance number or a couple dances and we're like, can the, can the actors still hear the music so that they can stay in rhythm mm-hmm. with the show while the audience it's brought down a little bit. So it's not overwhelming them. And it it was great to be able to do something like that uh, and to know what it takes to put something like that on because now we are better informed Mm -hmm. of how we can make sure that this happens again in the future. Mm -hmm. And I was at the performance yesterday and I was amazed by the number of adults too who came who also said even if this was for those who um, are neurotypical or need that sensory friendliness, they themselves also found comfort Mm -hmm. in knowing that it wasn't going to be overstimulating for them too. And they may not necessarily have, quote, that need, Mm -hmm. but it fulfilled something for them that they were unaware that they needed. I mean, yeah, I mean, you go to a movie theater and you're being blasted with sound. So I can imagine that just having the music a little lower might be nice for some people. Yeah. Um, you know, we're we're coming close to the end of our time together. But um, for theater goers, I, I think I would be remiss to not ask what else is on for ACT and what should I be looking out for? I got to admit, I'm pretty excited to see Soul Train, which I think is coming in the summer. But what yeah. what are some productions that you're excited about? Yeah, so we have three um, other shows aside from Soul Train coming along that I'm really excited about. One of them is called The Headlands by Christopher Chen, and Christopher Chen is a local playwright. He came up through the Bay Area. He's lived here pretty much all his life, and his play is a bit of a a letter to the Bay Area, especially with San Francisco. Um, and for me, it's also really great talking about representation. He's a Asian American playwright and seeing him write a story about uh, a child and a paternal figure in San Francisco, kind of mm. trying to figure out their life. Um, the other play that's coming up is called Poor Yellow Rednecks, which is about, it's basically for those of you who uh, saw it, Viet Gone was a show that was done several years ago right. um, at ACT. And it's the second part to that story. Oh. And that, is a play that I watched about five times across the U.S. Oh, and I wow. loved it. I saw it at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I saw it in New York when I was living up there at the time, and I also went to 
um, Orange County at South Coast Repertory was originally commissioned and saw it there. So this show now has a sequel coming out. So that's coming up. And then we're also doing uh, Sam Pinkleton's The Wizard of Oz. It's his uh, interpretation and vision and direction of The Wizard of Oz. Oh, fun. And it's going to be exciting. He He's a visionary. And I can't even tell you some of the things that he shared that everyone in ACT has been kind of like, oh, my gosh, what is that going to look like? That's so enthralling. Well, but the way he talks about his artistry is, is so fantastic. Well, your enthusiasm is certainly contagious. And last question. What's your favorite line from The Christmas Carol? Oh, gosh. Um Ooh, this might be a bit basic, but I, I do want to go with God bless us, everyone, because <laughs> I think we all just need a lift right now. That's not basic. That's just awesome. <laughs> um, Peter Quo is the director of the ACT Theater production of A Christmas Carol. It is definitely something you should not say bah humbug to. Um, a Christmas Carol is in production until December 24th with 1 o'clock p.m. matinee performances on Wednesday, December 21st and Friday, December 23rd. Tickets are available on the ACT website. Peter, Thank you so much for being on State of the Bay. Of course. Thank you so much, Grace. Thanks. And coming up next, we hear from Gary Camilla and Ethan Elkind. Gary is the author of San Francisco Spirits and one of the city's favorite historians. Stay with us. Gary Camilla, welcome back to State of the Bay. Uh, thanks for having me, Ethan. It's good to be back here. So, Gary, you're a San Francisco historian, the author of two books about San Francisco, Cool, Gray City of Love, and Spirits of San Francisco, Voyages Through the Unknown City. And for nearly a decade, you wrote a history column for the San Francisco Chronicle called Portals of the Past. And this past September, you wrote a two-part column about an Italian priest in North Beach in the early 1900s. But that column was pulled by the San Francisco Chronicle a few days before it was supposed to run. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell us what happened and maybe talk about the column first. And then we can talk about what happened with the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, Sure. So I wrote a two-part column for my Portals of the Past column that I've been doing at the Chronicle for nine and a half years about this uh, amazing Italian priest named Father Oresti Trinchietti, who was a Salesian, an order founded in the 19th century by a priest named John Bosco, who was actually canonized for his work with a troubled and disadvantaged youth in Torino. And so the Salesians have always had a special dispensation to work with youth. And so Father Trinchietti uh, was assigned to come to San Francisco from Italy and he came to St. Peter and Paul Church in North Beach in 1914, where he began ministering to the flock there. And the Italian-American community at that time in North Beach, and it was both Italians and Italian-Americans, but the youth, almost all of whom were Italian-Americans, were suffering from a very high rate of juvenile delinquency, a very high rate of school truancy. And these are for reasons that are pretty familiar with immigrant groups, uh, tensions with their parents, generational conflicts. Often the parents were very impoverished, were working very hard. The kids were torn by cultural pressures. They were 
weary of hearing their parents talk about the good old days back in Lucca, and a lot of them started getting into trouble. So uh, Father uh, Trinchietti came on the scene, and he was an, a black-robed whirlwind. He uh, was a one-man force of nature, starting sports teams. That was his most important intervention with these at-risk youth, starting theater groups, newspapers, Boy Scout troops, and he turned around the lives of literally thousands of boys and young men and was an incredibly beloved figure throughout San Francisco, a folk hero. He was really the city's first street priest. And he had this incredible success story of turning around the lives of so many of these young people. And he tragically died at the age of 51. He was a truly beloved figure. And six years after his death, they had a memorial service for him, and more than a thousand of his boys showed up for their beloved father, Trink, as he was called. So he was a he was an extraordinary figure. Mm-hmm. So that's the story that I filed. So it sounds like a really inspiring story. It's a great local piece, which Portals of the Past always featured. So what happened with the San Francisco Chronicle? Why they pulled this piece from running? Yeah, yeah. Well, to my amazement, after I filed it two days before it was to run. I got an email from an editor at the Chronicle saying that uh, we've decided uh, not to run this piece because some other editors thought that it depicted an entire ethnicity as hoodlums. So the top editor, according to this email I got, found it offensive to an ethnic group. And I was told that an appeal would probably be useless because the editor-in-chief was involved in this decision. I, of course, appealed nonetheless. I offered to make changes in the piece if that would make it more acceptable. And first I was flabbergasted because it's a very inspiring story. And then I was outraged. And uh, I sent this long email back to the editor that contacted me, promised to pass it on to other editors, and I never heard another thing. And I was so outraged that I told them that I had no intention of leaving the Chronicle where I'd been for nine and a half years but that I could no longer work for a publication that censored history. Uh, So I left and uh, I took my column to the San Francisco Examiner, where the piece ran uh, last Sunday. And I don't think any readers have found it offensive. (laughs) So uh, that's what what happened. Uh, No no, uh, outcry was was avoided by not having you run it in the Chronicle in the first place. But I'm glad that readers can still find you in the San Francisco Examiner. But I'm curious about the Chronicle. Is this a a new policy for them? Has there been a change in leadership? Have you experienced anything like this before from submitting one of your columns? No, no, nothing like this has ever happened before. I mean, the Chronicle has understandably and to some degree laudably trying to be very sensitive about racial and ethnic matters and bending over backwards not to give offense. And I can understand some of that, uh, but you certainly don't want to censor history. As I told them, in my resignation letter, I said, you may think this is a good idea, but if you're going to do this, you're going to have to delete the piece that I wrote about this notorious vice district called Sydney Town in the gold rush days, because those were mostly Australians. You're going to have to get rid of the pieces I wrote about the hatchet men and the sex slavery in Chinatown, because the bad actors there were all Chinese. You're going to have to get rid of my piece about the hoodlums who beat up the Chinese because they were mostly Irish. Like once you open this door, There's no stopping it, and you'd pretty much end up emptying the history shelves. So I feel like this was just utterly indefensible, and that's why I felt like I had to leave. Well, so what do you think is the 
proper way to offer these generalizations about ethnic groups. And particularly when you're describing a bit of history that might, you know, unfortunately, but perhaps accurately play into some stereotypes that people might yeah. have about certain groups. How do you as an historian navigate that minefield? So I'd imagine that it, that would be pretty tricky. Yeah, it can be difficult. I think the same rules apply to journalism and to history. It's all about telling the truth. Uh, if you're satisfied that what you're saying about a group, even if it is a generalization, is true, then it's basically your duty to uh, state that and then provide the evidence for it. Of course, you don't want to smear anyone. You don't want to be unfair to anyone. But it's when the truth is the truth, uh, you're not doing anyone any favors by trying to pretend that it's not the truth. And that is as true in journalism as it is in history. Mm -hmm. This is a piece that actually uh, makes the Italian and Italian-American community look really good. They came from a troubled place. Well, guess what? When you're going to have a happy ending of a story, you have to have a problem. It's like narrative 101. If, if you don't get to have the heroic priest unless the heroic priest was confronting some deep problems. And there are deep problems that, that different ethnic groups at different times in history have to deal with. This is just simply historical reality. And to try to pretend that, oh, no, you know, no ethnic group, we can't ever say anything bad about it because we say something bad about them. We might have to say something bad about some other ethnic group. Once you go down that road, you're lost because you can't tell the truth anymore. And uh, it's really not a road you want to go down. So well, I am glad you're at the San Francisco Examiner because I've always enjoyed reading your columns. And I know you're a Bay Area native, born in Oakland, but you've lived in San Francisco since 1971. I'm curious, over the past 50 years that you've lived in the city, what do you think of this current iteration of it? Well, you know, boy, it's a lot to be critical of. Um, certainly, the city is much more expensive. Um, it's probably more culturally monochromatic at this particular time. Um, I really try to avoid being the grumpy old man telling the young tech kids not to play on my lawn because I know that cities change uh, inevitably and they have boom and bust cycles. But I take the long view on these things. Then there are parts of things that are very enjoyable. Some of the amenities, the changes in the physical landscape of the city, like the beautiful New Francisco Park on Lombard and Hyde. Uh, there's there's some wonderful changes that the city has undergone, partly because we've had a fairly flush budget, or in, in actually in the case of that park, I think most of that money was raised privately. But there's a, a good things that have come about. So it's very complicated. I can't say I love it all, but I, I certainly do not allow myself to become embittered by it, nor do I tend to see it as the product of a few malefactors that are pulling the strings and and causing the good old San Francisco to disappear. I think yeah. that's simplistic. Well, I think you're right. In some ways, a victim of its success. It's such a beautiful city, and that just attracts more and more people. And it's also been a, a wonderful canvas for you to paint some of this history for all the newcomers and the longtime residents here of the Bay Area. I'm glad your column can continue on at the San Francisco Examiner. So, Gary Camille, it's been a real pleasure to chat with you, and thank you so much for joining us on State of the Bay. Thanks for having me, Ethan. Nice chatting with you. 
That was Ethan's um, uh, interview with Gary Camillo. The State of the Bay reached out to the San Francisco Chronicle, which declined to provide a comment. And that's State of the Bay this week. We want to thank all of our guests and listeners this evening for being part of the conversation. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit the State of the Bay page on KALW.org. And if you have any questions or comments about anything you heard, send us an email, Bay at KALW.org. Tonight's show was produced by Ann Harper and me. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. This is our last live show of the year. We'll be back on January 9th with more live and local stories. But until then, State of the Bay is produced by Jillian Emblad, Ann Harper, Kendra Klang, Sam Klein-Markman, Chris Nooney, and Wendy Holcomb is our fearless leader. Do the Sansom handles engagement, and Ethan Elkind and I are your hosts. Good night, everyone. Have a safe and happy holiday season.